Well, nobody likes to fail, but there's no denying that failure has produced a lot of good things. And you can Google sometime, don't do it now while I'm teaching, but sometime you can Google failure. There's a gazillion quotes, there's a gazillion illustrations, every inventor and every scientist who failed and failed and failed and failed and failed. And I could have given, I suppose, some of those. I didn't. <laughs> but uh, so many uh, of the wonderful breakthroughs that we had in science or whatever came from failure. Uh, Abraham Lincoln talks about all the, uh, they talk about all the times he was not elected, how many elections he lost. And no one remembers that, but they remember what he did do. Um, I saw a statistic. I can't remember the number now, but of how many times Michael Jordan took the game-winning, the potential game-winning buzzer-beater shot and missed. It was astounding. I, I, can't, I can't remember how many it was, but I just remember going, you got to be kidding me. How could a guy uh, take that many last-minute shots and still come back and take more? But I do remember the last shot he ever shot in a Bulls uniform. He was playing, playing the Utah Jazz, game six, and did that familiar crossover, maybe a push-off, but we're not going to talk about that, and then hit that jumper at the buzzer. Well, it wasn't quite at the buzzer, but last second shot to win. Uh, you know, failure, if, uh, if we learn the correct lessons from failure, is a gift. It is not the end, and much more so in our Christian life. We do fail, we do fall, but God will use this to draw us closer to himself. In lesson eight, uh, we saw, as a review here, we saw that Jesus sets us free from the penalty of sin, and that's called regeneration. He sets us free from the power of sin, and this is uh, something that happens over time, and that's what we call renewal. And he sets us free from the presence of sin eventually. So uh, that's redemption. So uh, there's an immediate aspect, a gradual aspect, and an eventual aspect uh, as far as what God has done in regeneration, sanctification, and redemption. Uh, over and over, we try harder and harder and harder, and many times we find the more we try, the, the more we, we struggle and, and fail and fall. So the lesson tonight is falling forward, falling forward. We're going to start with Revelation chapter 2. And the Bible says this, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, have, uh, these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars and has borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. So some good things, in other words. He found some, some, some good things that they, were, that they were doing. But there's a word there in verse 4, nevertheless. That's not what you want to hear when he was on a, on a roll. You know, keep that up. We love the good stuff. But nevertheless, I have found somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, Therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will, will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Tonight we're talking about failing forward. So they failed here. And uh, the, the, the question is why? And he, he mentions there, their problem. What was their problem? In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Church of Ephesus, what was their problem? They left their first love. Yep, they left their first love. And it's not that they necessarily uh, didn't have standards or didn't have certain things in place, uh, but they, they lost something that was deeper than that. And we can have, we do have standards. We have standards in our families. We have standards despising the shame and to set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, 
lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. So we see a theme in that, in that uh, passage. He's talking about our, our, our race that we are running. And one of the themes, self-righteousness. This is not what we want, but it's oftentimes where we are. I'm going to read you this from the book. In the common faulty theology of our early spiritual growth, we can turn to rules and standards as our measuring sticks of spiritual health. While we disregard love and relationship. All right, now he's not saying that rules and standards are wrong. He's just saying that we oftentimes turn to them as the measuring stick. So we look around and we say, I wonder how everybody's doing. Well, let me look at all their rules and standards. And he's got a lot of rules and standards. He's, he's up here and they don't have as many. Well, they're down here. And, and we just kind of measure everybody by this external measuring stick. And that is uh, not the way this is supposed to go. All right, our journey can become a strict adherence to a code. If that's all that our Christian life is reduced to, a strict adherence to a code, then we're not a lot different than a lot of the other cults and false religions out there. Uh, there has to be something much deeper than that. So rather than using personal standards as a simple, safe boundary line of serving, they can become our personal measuring sticks of spiritual success. So, uh, all right, standards are guardrails is to keep you from sin. So you're driving down the road, and first there's the rumble strip, right? Is that what you guys call them? I don't know what you call them, the, brrr, the rumble strip. And if you go past that, then there's a scrape on the guardrail. If you blast through the guardrail, that could be a really bad day uh, as you go down into the ravine or off the cliff or whatever. Uh, standards are those guardrails. Um, they are to just keep you, hopefully, not up against the guardrail, but in the middle of the road, or uh, not the middle, <laughs> your lane, stay in your lane, all right? And, uh, you know, we, we would not ever say, wow, this highway over here, Highway 100, boy, that's the best highway. The guardrails are like gold and 10 feet high. They have guardrails on top of their guardrails. It's just amazing. I mean, that's, that's stupid. That's not a measure of a good road. Uh, the guardrail is just supposed to be a reminder and, and maybe a, a, a protection. Uh, but really, what are we trusting to stay on the road? Hopefully, we're awake, we're sound, you've had your coffee or whatever you need. Uh, you have 10 and 2, and, and you, are, you are locked in and doing everything you're supposed to do, and you don't really need the guardrail, all right? But in the Christian life, sometimes we see the boundaries, the guardrails, the standards of the rules, and we somehow make this our mark of spiritual success. How tall, how big, how, we're so proud of our guardrails. So he says, keeping rules can become our definition of spiritual maturity. And, and that is a problem when the guardrail becomes your definition of spiritual maturity. And then what happens is spirituality can become an exercise in living under the law rather than growing in grace. So Jesus talked about this with the Pharisees in Matthew 23:27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Ye hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you saying, Matthew 15 now, I'm sorry, Matthew 15:7. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So those who worked the hardest to discipline their behavior and keep their rules were actually the farthest from God. And that's, that's tragic. These Pharisees worked really, really hard. Uh, but it was a matter, it was an exercise in self-righteousness. Now, some of their laws were God-given. The Pharisees, it wasn't like they made up every single thing they did. Some of their laws were God-given, but others were man-made. And uh, what happened with them is their, their standards, their law-keeping became their God. They disciplined themselves and they judged others. They measured their spirituality by these external indicators. They worshiped their religion and their good behavior. So we can find ourselves in a pharisaical mindset. Now, 
Um, nobody likes to be called a Pharisee. Anybody like that one? I'm curious. Has anyone been called a Pharisee besides me? I'm just curious. Has anyone been called a Pharisee? I have been called a Pharisee uh, several times. It's not a fun one to wear, that's for sure. Um, now, at first, earlier on in my journey, I was tempted to just dismiss it, and it's really easy to dismiss. You just say, ah, it doesn't apply to me, pal. The Pharisees were unsaved, and I happened to be saved. And, and the Pharisees, you know, what their problem was, they were trying to work their way to salvation. They were trying to do good works in order to be saved. And I don't believe in that, so I'm not a Pharisee. Ha-ha, gotcha. Okay, the thing is, is no one who has ever accused me of being a Pharisee was telling me I was working my way to salvation. No one who, no one, that's never been their motive. You Pharisee, John Barber, you're trying to work your way into, into heaven by your good works. That was never why they did that. So why do you think I was called a Pharisee? They sent some self-righteousness or something. And, uh, you know, I've, we're all on a journey. I'm on a journey, you're on a journey. I've, I've definitely been learning a lot in this regard and still need to learn more. Uh, they were not telling me that I was trying to have uh, work my way to heaven, right? Um, what they saw was a pharisaical mindset. Um, I think I've mentioned some of this before, but I remember when I was just married, my wife and I, I was in seminary. That's when you're the most dangerous, by the way. Not when you're just married. When you're in seminary. Maybe both, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was in seminary, and <laughs> okay, we'll keep moving. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, we went out to, for a camping trip with this other young couple, about our age, and uh, we had really hit it off with them. They were brand new in the church. And when you're in seminary, you think you've gotten everything figured out. And so we're at, we're at this campfire. We had our hot dogs and s'mores. We didn't have kids. They didn't have kids. It's just us having a great night. And then I spoiled it. He and I had both brought our guitars. And so we brought our, our guitars. We're going to pick and grin a little bit, you know, and sing a couple songs and whatever. And then he broke into some song. And I was like, what is that? That does not sound like good godly Christian music here. You know, what is he playing? And so I, I don't know that one, brother. And I just kind of listen, and, and he keeps on sanging and twanging and whatever. And, and uh, it, looking back on it, it wasn't that big of a deal. But at that time, I was like, oh, this poor brother needs my help. And so on our campfire, couples night out, you know, having a great old time, I determined to help this guy break down why that wasn't the best song and whatever. And... Uh, yeah, he thought I was a Pharisee. And I can't blame him, and actually I think I would agree with him now. And I made a big, big deal about it. I have since, uh, he went his way, pastored a church down south, I went my way. I've since called him and apologized for that. And so we've taken care of that whole thing. Uh, it took me a few years to see it, but I was like, yeah, that was, that was, that was stupid. I, and, and, and I'll just tell you, at that time, it, it broke our relationship. After that campfire, us two couples never did anything again. Never did anything again. And I said, I am right. And he was so defensive and argumentative, and he was so guilty. I mean, he knew that that thing was wrong. That music was just wrong. And uh, I totally missed the bigger picture of what God was doing in his heart, in, his, in him and his wife, and where they were at, the journey they were on. There was so much that God was doing in their lives, and so much that I could have done to help him and and, and, and befriend him, and, and, uh, and yet I just got stuck on this one thing. Um, well, yeah, he thought I was a Pharisee. I can't, I can't uh, blame him for, for his, his, his uh, idea there because I was very judgmental. I was castigating him, and his, his, his standards weren't my standards. His rules weren't my rules, and so forth and so on. We need to be careful. I, I, I did. I did walk away from that campfire, and I had judged him as a lesser Christian. 
unspiritual in the way he responded to me. I mean, he cast off all my wisdom. I mean, I had, I had all this wisdom that he just cast it aside. What in the world? Unspiritual guy. No, 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 no. Um, th- that was totally a wrong understanding of holiness on my part, and there was self-righteousness there. Now, I've got some notes here I noticed that are not in yours. I've got several points here, and you guys don't have them. So I've got like six points. If you want to jot these down, you can, but uh, I don't know if it'll fit anywhere. But this, we're still under point one, understanding holiness and let me see here. Let me make sure I'm in the right spot. Yeah, so we're under letter A, self-righteousness. All right, so oftentimes we are blind to the pharisaicalness about us, if I can put it that way. That we, we are just seeing this in a way that is unhealth, uh, uh, unhealthy. Like the Pharisees, rule-keeping can quickly become our goal and our definition of success. Now, he, he, he asked this question, why is this wrong? Why is it wrong for rule-keeping to become our goal and definition of success? I've got six answers. Before we get to that, what do you guys have to say? Uh, The question is, again, like the Pharisees, rule-keeping can quickly become our goal and definition of spiritual success. Uh, Our standards may be high, and we score ourselves pretty well, uh, you know, but how is this wrong? How is this wrong? Yes. Leave room for God? Yeah. Yes, and we're, you're, you're, you're tracking right with, with where we're going here. Um, so rule keeping, if it's a goal and a definition of spiritual success, it's missing, it's missing the purpose of the rules and the standards. All right, right? Any, any, any other thoughts? Yes? Um, I can't help but think of Amen. Absolutely. And that ties in with my campfire experience. If I had been so in love with the Lord and so in love with my neighbor and the opportunity God had given us to get to know them and they were brand new in the church, you know, if I had loved him, that would have changed my conversation with him about, <laughs> about his guitar piece. By the way, halfway through the discussion, I found out he wrote the song <laughs> for his wife on their anniversary. Yeah. Yep. The conversation at that point took a deeper dive. And I was an idiot. I, I, at that point, you know, back out. You're done. Uh, oh, you wrote for your wife's anniversary. Well, let me tell you what else is wrong with it. I mean, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it comes out of love, love for God, love for our neighbor. And that is going to help us with everything else that, 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 you know, needs to take place. Sure. Absolutely. So I'll give you six quick things. Uh, he says, how is this wrong? Number one, first, it minimizes God and the work of his spirit. That's what Zakari said, uh, basically. First, it minimizes God and the work of his spirit. Uh, in other words, we're trying to manufacture success, uh, we're trying to manufacture uh, goodness and appearance rather than letting God produce those things in our life and cultivate those things, all right? So we don't want to minimize God and his work. We want him to produce a genuine work. All right, second, it minimizes grace. Uh, if we're not careful, we can place self-effort and personal discipline ahead of spiritual and organic a work of grace. So we don't want to minimize grace. Uh, turning spirituality into something that can be manufactured or manipulated rather than cultivated and grown by God's grace in our lives. So first, it minimizes the work of God and the work of His Spirit. Second, it minimizes grace. Third, it places your evaluation ahead of God's. And I've, I'm guilty, guilty as charged here. I have to remember I'm not the judge. Boy, I like to be judge and jury. I'll take a gavel in both hands. <laughs> it's just, it's like, I think it's human nature. Maybe it, not, not for everybody, but it is. 
uh, for, for, for most, it would seem. Uh, but we are not to judge every other person. We are a growing Christian that's learning and growing and being cultivated and nurtured, and others are growing Christians, learning and growing and being cultivated and nurtured. And uh, when, we're try- when you take two individuals that are still growing and they're judging each other, that's going to be tough. And it's interesting. The older I get, the more I realize, you know, I've got maybe some pet things that are really important to me. And maybe in my world, the people in my world do this and this and this. And then you come into contact with other Christians and they have different, like, pet things. And, and uh, they think they're conservative because they have these three standards that you don't have. And you think they're liberal because they don't have the three standards that you have. And both individuals are looking at each other, oh, liberal, <laughs> liberal. And welcome to a Baptist church. There you go. Uh, everyone's liberal and conservative all at the same, same time. Why? Uh, we are placing our evaluation ahead of God, and it's a losing game. We can't uh, attempt to measure someone else's spirituality simply by looking at what they're doing or not doing. And that's not our job anyway. So that was third. It places your evaluation ahead of God's fourth. It is externally focused. Remember, the Pharisees focused on the externals, uh, their behavior. And if we only focus on the externals, there's a lot of problems with that. Externals can be faked. Externals can be forced. Externals can be uh, uh, just, just, you know, not... Uh, maybe maybe they're, they're motivated out of fear um, or whatever. But our rules and standards sometimes can whitewash the outside. And so we got to be careful about that. Fourth, it's externally focused. Fifth, so we're saying, what is wrong with the Pharisees' idea of, of um, rule-keeping becoming the goal and definition of success? Fifth, it fosters compartmentalization and rationalization. That's a good one. It fosters compartmentalization and rationalization. What did Jesus say? You are whitewashed sepulchers. In other words, you've compartmentalized. There's a certain compartment that you will whitewash and make it beautiful. There's another compartment that's full of dead men's bones. And whenever you have a ministry or a family that is, uh, more, has more of a pharisaical mindset, what you'll oftentimes find is a compartment somewhere of dead men's bones. Because if we're doing this in our own strength, the point on the screen is self-righteousness. We're on that point. If we're self-righteous about all this, we can't fix all of this. And so we tend to focus on certain things. We tend to kind of leave certain things. And, and, and that's another way that you can realize this is not coming from that first love. Re- Revelation 2, 1 through 5, or uh, the, the passage that uh, Lloyd mentioned. Uh, love for God, love for others. Compartmentalization will marginalize certain hidden sins, will marginalize certain things in our walk because we've got other things that are really, really looking good. And so, of course, you know, God's going to be okay with, with me because this is kind of balancing out. Now, that is a secular way of thinking. That's how lost men think. So be careful. It fosters compartmentalization and rationalization. Um, this is also what we see in, in some of our, our, our churches where some scandal comes out, and maybe it was due to the fact that they had kind of compartmentalized. And they've got all of this looking good, and we kind of leave this out over here. Sixth, it removes the Holy Spirit's work in holy living. <clears throat> Self-generated holiness isn't holiness. You can appear holy, but uh, it is not just uh, the appearance that, that matters. The Pharisees looked holy, but God was interested in the root. He wanted them to have a heart of love for him, not just modifying behavior. We've talked about that before, but uh, getting deeper than that, yielding to Christ, having a deeper relationship. All right, so um, this does not, I want to read this from the book because it's important. This does not in any way demean personal standards or good behavior. All right, I want to say that again because someone's already asking that, probably. Everything we've said is not in, 
intended to demean personal standards or good behavior. They are important. Everybody has them. But they should be the product of our first love. That's the point. The product of our first love, not the product of our self-effort. Yes? We spent a few months at our church. This is my brother-in-law, by the way. This is Daniel Childers, my wife's brother, in case people didn't know. Take away, Dan. Uh, all right, thanks. Uh, we spent about a year looking at seeking holiness for developing personal standards, or seeking wisdom for developing personal standards of holiness. And as part of that, we talked about legalism. Of course, the Bible doesn't use that word, and so um, maybe legalism is work salvation. And like you said, we could basically say, well, none of us have that problem. Um, so what is the problem that we have? And although we maybe aren't legalistic, we, we may struggle with self-righteousness, right? And so we, we compared it, we contrasted self-righteousness, self-righteousness with God's righteousness. And, you know, I think it's fair to say, I mean, Christ said, if you love me, keep my commandments, mm-hmm. right? So it's fair to say that somebody who isn't following God's rules really is demonstrating a lack of love for him. Fair enough. Well, of course, that doesn't mean that people that follow God's rules obviously love him, right? I mean, they may have their own motivations. But as we compare those, you know, self-righteousness is attainable because we make up our own rules and we make up rules that we can attain. God's righteousness is never attainable. Uh, I mean, we can never be as holy as Christ, right? And so self-righteousness then leads to pride. Whereas seeking God's righteousness always leads to humility. And because of that, self-righteousness is a hindrance to the gospel, because our pride turns people away from the gospel. But seeking Christ's righteousness and falling short, crying out to him for help in that, is a blessing to others and promotes the gospel, because people see us humbly seeking Christ's righteousness. um, there There were just... There were just so many fascinating differences between the righteousness that we established for mm-hmm. ourselves and the and God calling us to Christ Christ like holiness. Absolutely. And uh, what, what self righteousness is always hurtful to others, mm. and seeking Christ holiness is always a blessing to others. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, Self-righteousness is always hurtful to others. Christ's righteousness is always going to be a blessing. And I, I think maybe we can evaluate some of the situations in our life that have gone awry, like uh, maybe a conflict with another brother or sister in Christ, like I had at that campfire. And so I was teaching him Christ's righteousness. Why didn't he get a hold? You know, well, there was, I, looking back on it, there was most definitely some self-righteousness involved there. And uh, only by pride come with contention. And, and so sometimes there is a lot of pushing away and polarization that takes place in churches around truth and around good things, good topics, biblical topics. And maybe it's because of, of you know, the, the self-righteous aspect getting in there more than we even realize. But good thoughts. Very good. Yeah. Um, so don't fall into the trap of measuring yourself or others merely by externals. There's a bigger story. And part of this, it's been helpful for me <clears throat> to travel. You know, we have so many little circles in, in our world of independent fundamental Baptists. And there's just, in this circle, you do it this way. And in this circle, you do it this way. And the, this group of churches, they, they, they fellowship around a certain conference or a certain college, and they do it this way. And in traveling, uh, you bounce around in all these circles, and you realize, man, all these folks are God's people. They all love the Word of God. Uh, some of these differences are not the end of the world, and some of these things, maybe they could grow in them a little bit, but they're just not there for whatever reason. Uh, and, and it's refreshing to know that God is working in a lot of places, not just here within my circle. And I'm very, very glad for that. So we need to have grace in our hearts for uh, other folks uh, in, in, in other walks and venues and so forth. Um, all right, we are hardly moving through the material, but we'll get there. All right. Um, again, personal standards are simply boundaries to protect our lives and testimonies. 
That's it. Personal standards are simply boundaries to protect our lives and testimonies. They are not the measure of who I am as a Christian. And yet they have become that. I asked a pastor once, this will blow you away. Well, it should blow you away. Uh, I was preaching a revival meeting as an evangelist at a, a good, good church. And I asked the pastor before maybe the Wednesday night service, we're about midway through the meeting. Pastor, if, if revival, real heaven sent revival came to this church this week, what would it look like? He didn't waste any time. He had his answer that fast. You know what it was? Everybody on time, dressed right for everything. That fast. I couldn't believe it. That, that was revival. And the whole week, he complained after every service about someone walked in late. They've been here for 20 years. They know we start at 7 o'clock. They walked in late. He was just fuming about that. I'm like, I was glad they came. They have seven kids. I mean, my stars, they got here. The guy had a day at work. I mean, praise the Lord, here they are. Yeah, but not, no. Mm. And then, um, oh, he, he uh, before I preached, this one kid got up to sing a song. Beautiful song. This kid was probably 16 years old. A lot of 16-year-olds will not get up and sing a solo. Actually, no, it was a duet. It was him and his sister. Get a 16-year-old boy to sing with his sister. He gets up with his sister, sings this song. I thought, that is great. I was ready to preach. I get up after that. I preach my heart out. As soon as I am done, this, this pastor comes to me. I need to talk to you. I was like, what did I do? He's like, I am so sorry. I got to apologize. He says, I have already, uh, as soon as I'm done talking to you, I'm going to go find that young man. And I'm going to tell him, you don't ever get in my pulpit again without a tie. You know better than that. You should never, and he did, he, he, he told me what he was going to do, and he went and found that kid. You do not sing without a tie ever again. Don't let that happen. And I was like, wow. Uh, and the whole week, the, the, the entire measure of what we were doing was how many were there, uh, and were they on time, and how were they dressed, and so forth. And, and uh, folks, I'm telling you, that is oppressive. And that is, that is not... That is not a healthy environment. Uh, further, I will say this. His people were trained to be on time. <laughs> can, I mean, can you imagine? If, if that's what you, you deal with, like those people, they were there. They were on time, from, except for that one family, bless them. Uh, you know? <laughs> but, um, uh, and so, so he had, the, and they, they had their ties on, and they were, they, were looking, they were doing what they were supposed to do. But it was, this is what we have to do here. This is what we have to do here, as opposed to, I, I, I like people to be on time. I mean, I like myself to be on time once in a while if I can be. <laughs> uh, and dressing nice is great too. If you have a tie, uh, sure. But uh, the, it, it was a little bit backwards. You're going to say something? Have you ever read the green letters? I don't believe I have. I, I'll give you a quote. It's by Miles Sanford. It's a, it's a very small book, uh, but I think it's been a big blessing to me. He says, anything we seek to do or keep from doing in our own strength brings us under legal bondage. Any promises or vows we make to the Lord, any code of ethics or rules or conduct that we set up for ourselves or have placed upon us are on the basis of law and therefore result in failure and ever deepening enslavement. Wow. And enslavement, that's an interesting term to use there. Um, you think of enslavement, oftentimes we think of that in terms of enslaved to sin, enslaved to some wickedness, but there can, you, can, you can be doing the right thing and even feel ens enslaved. Uh, yeah. The law is supposed to bring us somewhere. It's to, it's to bring us to Christ. So, uh, bottom line, we don't want to usurp the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in others or, or, and fall into that trap. So the self-righteous trap, we want to avoid that, obviously. So what do we want then? As we're understanding holiness... Go back to that slide. We're understanding holiness. We don't want to, to, to think of it as mere self-righteousness. We want it to be Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. <clears throat> God is interested in holiness. 
He's not interested in self-righteousness, but he is interested in holiness. As obedient children, 1 Peter 1.14, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust and your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Well, again, we can focus on maybe the fashioning portion first. But we should focus on uh, why are we doing this. He said the why is be holy because I am holy. In other words, it's about me. That gets back to our first love. Revelation 2, you've, lost your first lo- you've left your first love. As you are in love with him and he is holy, you want to please him. So that's the motivation here. And we want to be an obedient children. If you love me, keep my commandments. Uh, so therefore, don't fashion yourself according to what you were when you were ignorant and your lust, but continue in this first love. Continue to, to love him and get to know him and be obedient to him, which will produce holiness. Be holy in all manner of conversation. All right, uh, so there's three aspects we're going to highlight here. And holiness is another way of saying Christ likeness. Three levels internal holiness. Uh, I think this is your notes, maybe it's not. Internal holiness. Uh, you were declared holy through Jesus the moment you placed your faith in Christ. The new birth, where you were delivered from the penalty of sin. Then you've got external holiness, where you're being renewed and transformed in your mind uh, every day, growing in grace. This is that process of sanctification that happens after we are saved. Uh, Becoming holy, maturing in Christ-likeness, all right? This is called being rescued from the power of sin. Then you have eternal holiness. So internal holiness, external holiness, that's that process by which we are being renewed, being transformed into his image. Then eternal holiness, you will one day be redeemed, freed from sin to live forever in heaven. This is the new body to be rescued one day from the presence of sin. All right, so Christ-likeness is the goal, not mere self-righteousness. So let's talk more about that. How do, we, how do we, uh, we grow in this? Well, people ask, how do you measure maturity? We're growing, but how do we measure maturity? Did anybody put marks on a wall for your kids when they, when they grew? Uh, yeah, you guys do that? It's kind of fun. My mom would try, but I grew so fast. I mean, we gave up when I was hitting the door jam. Uh, not quite. Uh, but I, I, I remember loving to see that I had grown a couple inches. And you want to go up to that mark and, yes. Um, if anybody willed themselves to grow, I think I was one. I, I, was, I was six foot at 12. Yeah, that's right. Six foot at 12 and then six four at 14, which was terrible for clothes. But anyway, growth. We like to have a measuring stick. Um, but measuring Christian maturity is harder than just pulling out a tape measure or taking a temperature or something. 2 Corinthians 10.12 says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. Uh, I have had, as the pastor of this church, I've had people get discouraged and say, Pastor, I'm just, who am I kidding? Who are we kidding? Our family, we're such a mess. We don't fit it in our Baptist church. And I say, there's, like, there's a number of things wrong with that. First of all, everybody's a mess here. Uh, I'm a mess here. We're all a mess. We're, we're all, at various times, feeling like we barely are hanging on. Uh, so you're in good company there, or bad company, whatever you want to call that, you know, <laughs> level playing ground, playing field there. But also, why are you comparing yourself with everybody else? That's not going to help. Compare yourself with the Word of God. Ask God, what does He want of you? But there are those who have dropped out of church because they looked around and said, who am I kidding? All right, well, this is not wise. And, and that uh, is going to go with you the rest of your life until you correct that thinking. Galatians, so what I'm saying is you're not going to fit anywhere. You're not going to fit anywhere until you stop comparing with everybody else and and just rest in the Word of God. 
All right, Galatians 6.14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. We should only be glorying in who he is and how he saved us and our love for him. Romans 14.4, Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, uh, for God is able to make him stand. So we don't need to judge somebody else's servant. Sometimes we get our nose in everybody else's business. Uh, the internet has been a great tool for meddling and division and uh, slander and gossip and busybody.com. I mean, Facebook is busy, might, 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 can be called busybody.com. Not that there's not good uses for it. There's great uses for it as well. But people, a lot of people misuse um, uh, the internet and just get in everybody else's business. I, I, when I see that, I'm thinking sometimes, how do people have time to get in everybody else's business? I can hardly keep up with my own business. Um, and again, where is love in all of that? People drop by and make these passing comments. Just drop a little comment here, blow that up. Drop a little comment here, blow that up. Love you, brother. Uh, there's not a lot of love in that, a lot of judgment, and we do it so self-righteously. You know, the self-appointed savior of Facebook, going to redeem every single Facebook post. I, I, I hate that. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of Facebook posts that need redeeming, <laughs> but uh, use your time someplace else. Uh, James 4, 12, uh, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy who art thou that judgest another? All right. So we want to measure growth. We want to measure maturity. And we want to see visible success in ourselves and others and somehow quantify it. So what does that look like? Well, rather than trying to measure my success by externals, God, focused, God calls me to focus on the health of my heart and relationship with him. I'm reading from the book there for a moment. He's more interested in what he's doing in me than what I am doing in me. All right? So again, God's calling me to focus on the health of my heart and my relationship with him. He's more interested in what he's doing in me than what I am doing uh, in me, maybe for him. And this is the key. The first takes care of the second. So immediately, as soon as, as, soon as you say a quote like that, someone's going to think, ah, eh that doesn't sound good. You're just focusing on the relationship, dropping all the stuff. No, the next phrase in the book says, the first takes care of the second. In other words, obedience happens out of that. Obedience and honor to Jesus Christ will happen uh, naturally as we respond to his grace rather than merely mechanically and a product of self-effort. And we've got to be very careful with our kids in this regard because, you know, um, the easiest thing, and I'm seeing this as my kids are growing, and you guys who've had kids get to watch me do all this, and <laughs> yeah, like, uh, well, you guys just pray for me now, okay? Uh, but it's just easy to just lay down laws. I was laughing about this with who? Who was, oh, the Modines. Yeah, <laughs> we, we tell our kids, we tell our kids, because, okay, they will go get candy from every person in this church. What? <laughs> Our kids love candy, and so we've had to tell them, kids, you know, uh, every church has a candy lady, or every church has a candy man, and our Baptist church has 50. 50 the, the, the spiritual gifts, spiritual gifts, Adam Burt left one out, the candy people. And so we have had to tell our kids, you're going to need to ask. You're going to need to ask us if you can, you know, go to someone for candy. Um, but if you, and don't just walk up to someone and ask, do you have candy for me? So, no, my kids are getting crafty. So they'll walk up and they're like, hi, do you have something for me? <laughs> and at the end, of, and the Bodines filled us in on this. Because I've been asking the kids every week. I've been saying, I've been saying, no, 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 it's been good. They, so I asked the kids, did you ask for candy today? Nope. Samuel, did anybody ask for candy today? Nope. Emily? No, sir. And now I get the scoop from the Modines today. You know, they're like, do you have anything in your purse? You know, Rachel knows about that because they're not allowed to ask for gum. 
It used to be Miss Rachel, can I have gum? Now it's Rachel, do you have anything in your purse? Oh, man, kids. So I can, I can lay down a gazillion rules and my kids will figure out a way around. And they can sit in the car. Al, are you under conviction? Are you giving out too much candy? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, say, you ask not because you have that because you ask <laughs> Oh man, I'm outnumbered. I'm outnumbered for sure. But the point of the illustration was, uh, you, you know, <laughs> well, no, no, the point is, I like to just lay down rules. And the rule is, don't ask Rachel for gum. And so they don't. Rachel, your purse looks heavy. Do you have too much of something in there that's chewy? <laughs> you know, they're going to find a way around. And, and so, in other words, and, uh, the candy thing might be innocent enough. But, like for me with my kids, if I don't change this approach and change this thinking, where is this going to go? And you can wear yourself out trying to make a rule for every little loophole. And you can't do it. There are not enough rules for the loopholes. Eventually, you have to get the kid to see that what mom and dad want here is good, and I understand what they're trying to do, and okay, I'm on board. Uh, that, boy, if we can help our kids with that, if we can ourselves think that way, that is, that's going to help with this whole process. Yes? To this whole thing. I knew you were going to do it. <laughs> so there we go. He's got, he's got zolipops, which prevent calories. Uh, cavities or calories? No. Cavities. Okay. All right. Hey, man. There you go. You going to say something? I, I remember in Bible college saying to a friend of mine, talking about somebody else, I said, I think so-and-so is probably the most godly guy in our class. And he said, I don't know about that. Really? You're gonna, you know, criticize it or what? And he said, I said, well, what? Why? And he said, I, I just don't know that godliness is something that can be measured and compared. I mean, why? Why would you say he's the most godly guy in the class? I, that's between him and the Lord. There's no way to measure that or create some order of who's the godliest uh -huh. or the least godly. And then I, ever since that, it really kind of changed my thinking on on that. Yeah. You know, I remember hearing a kid came home from camp at, uh, at a church that I, I was ministering in, and uh, all, the, all the camp kids were asked to come up and sing and then give testimonies about camp. And as in any youth group, you've got some kids who are maybe struggling and some kids who are doing better in the sense that they're, they're, they're more obedient, more pliable, whatever, and... Uh, there was obviously within, within the behind-the-scenes talk, uh, they used to talk about the good kids and the bad kids. And so the kid is giving his testimony about doing this and this at, 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 at camp, and, and we were praying for some of the bad kids. Oh, yeah, it slipped out because that's how they would talk. Pray for the bad kids. That there's the good kids at church and the bad kids at church. And it slipped out in front of the whole church in his testimony. Um, and we, kind of, we, 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 we easily can just start categorizing, and, and a lot of it's not even fair. You can't, you can't do right. You can't see. Yeah, we don't know who's, who's what. I, I remember <laughs> in, I forget which gospel, but Jesus is uh, outside the temple. People are given money, and you know everyone's making a judgment by how they're dressed, how much they're given. And, then, and you can just, as you read the context, you can see that's what they're talking about. And, and an old woman goes up and drops in a mic smallest thing, tiniest clang, and Jesus, he can judge it. He said, she gave all. She's the, the best. We just don't know. We don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Yes? Remember when, um, remember when Peter wanted to be Jesus' right-hand man? Yeah. And then, you know, what, what did Jesus tell Peter? He will be the, he will be the servant. He will be the servant. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. That was a theme. Yeah, certainly. So the key is remaining in love with Jesus. And that's also the theme he had with Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Asked it three times. 
if we remain in love with Jesus, walking with him, yielded to him, and trans- the, the transforming work will continue. That's why uh, I know my mom and dad would say, son, I want your heart. I want your heart. Because they don't need to come up with a gazillion rules if they have my heart, right? And, and that's what it's all about. Do you love me, son? Uh, the great danger of the Christian d- journey is idolatry uh, or defection. <clears throat> a lesser love or a giving up. First uh, John 5, 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Jude 21, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. 1 Timothy 4.16, take heed unto thyself and the doctrine. <clears throat> Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So from the moment we're saved until uh, now and, 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 and onward, there is a war going on for our love. There's a war raging over our affections. We're going to look at number three, and we've got to hit this quickly because we're basically out of time. So I apologize. We'll hit this quickly. Failing forward. <clears throat> so what do we do when we are failing? Well, remember Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. They had to get back to their first love. So number one, letter A, remember where you came from. Remember where you came from. When Paul looked back on his life, he was able to say, I fought a good fight. Uh, and, 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 and he had finished his course. Uh, we can consider Joshua. Joshua and the children of Israel, when they were fighting uh, to, to go into the promised land, God promised the victory would be theirs, but then he told them, you're going to have to go out and fight. That's interesting, isn't it? Just give me the victory. <laughs> I mean, why do we have to fight? Uh, there is a battle, and so the victory is ours, but there is going to be a battle. Did Joshua fail? Uh, yes, he did. AI was a failure in contrast to Jericho. And yet, that failure was used of God to help him on his journey. It's part of it. So remember where you came from, <clears throat> and, and the, the revelation, the, the church in, in Ephesus and Revelation there, uh, they had to remember from where they had fallen. Letter B, remember. God ordained this struggle, this battle that we're in. Remember, our old nature died immediately. Our flesh, the old habits and so forth, God is helping us to have daily victory and and change us into his image. But this is something that helps us to build faith, and faith glorifies God. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So, in other words, what's the silver lining of failure? There's a lot of silver linings in failure, but one is... The faith that you express when you repent and get back up and keep fighting forward brings God glory. As opposed to unbelief, which says, I'm always going to fail, I'm always going to fall, I might as well just stay down here, this is just too hard. That's unbelief, that's not going to give God any glory. And I think sometimes we think, we can't bring God glory because we had to fall and get back up, fall and get back up, fall and get back up. But no, the faith to get back up, God is pleased by that. He's encouraged by that. A righteous man falls seven times and rises yet again. That's why Ephesians 6 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that we, ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and so forth. In other words, a spiritual battle. My wife and I have been talking about that a lot lately. The spiritual battle is real. We've got to get back up by faith, be strong in the Lord, suit up with the, the, the shield of faith and all of the armor, and do battle. Spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. <clears throat> I believe that there's spiritual warfare going on in our church like crazy, and we've got to fight that battle. Let her see. Remember that there is no condemnation. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. When the devil condemns you, recognize that's not, that's not true. I'm not condemned. You know that the Holy Spirit will not condemn you? 
the Holy Spirit will convict you, but the Holy Spirit will not condemn you. And so sometimes we get that mixed up, and we, we think that the devil's condemnation, the devil's condemning voice is like God telling us, you're done, you're, you're just through, you're, you're, you're a waste of time. God would never do that. God will convict you and convince you this is wrong. This is not your destiny. You're my child. Yes, you should feel guilty about that. I can forgive you. I can restore you. Okay, conviction is one thing. Uh, condemnation is another. There is no condemnation. The Bible says if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. So condemnation is not the same as Holy Spirit conviction. One is destructive, one is restorative. And letter D, remember that this struggle that we are in, this battle, serves a purpose. It's not about trying harder. It's about trusting and yielding. It's not about we don't have enough rules. We've got to shore this up. Uh, I remember being a principal for one year, and we would have kids get so smart to, out, to, to, to outwit our rule book. And you're just, you meet, and we had a 7.30 in the morning teacher, staff, principal meeting, and we talk about something that happened, and we're like, what? How, how, how'd they do that? Someone says, we need another rule in the handbook. And you know what? Your handbook gets so big after a while. It gets huge. What we really need is not just another rule in the handbook. There's a name attached to every rule. <laughs> this is the so-and-so rule, the so-and-so rule. Uh, we need to get with that kid. We need to get with those parents and get to a deeper uh, heart issue. Uh, do you love the Lord? There was one girl who was so dark and nothing I could do could touch her. And she went off to Bible college and met God there. Came back, I did not recognize her. I mean, her hair was different, her makeup was different, her posture was different, her smile, I'd never seen her smile. I didn't know what her face looked like when when she smiled. Honestly, I did not recognize her when she came back. She had met with the Lord, and it's like all of a sudden, everything starts falling into place. Well, yeah, she loves the Lord now. Now, I'm not trying to control her with a rule book, And, 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 and yet, uh, she has a heart now to serve and obey and, and so forth. So there, there is a purpose here. We are wanting to learn to walk in the Spirit. And, and so we're going to have to remember that we've got to daily remind ourselves of these truths. Uh, we're out of time. Let me just hit the, the conclusion here. Um, all right. Uh, uh, well, I'm going to have to skip some of this. This is some good stuff. So here's this. Repentance is a change of thinking. It's acknowledging sin and running to Jesus. As his child, I can run to him. What do we do when we're a kid and we get scared? We run from? Jesus is someone to run to, not from. Jesus is someone to hide in, not hide from. And our gut response when we fail is to run from Jesus or to go hide what we need to see is when we fail, run to Jesus. He's not there to slap us around and say, I told you you'd fail. No, he's there to reach out as he did with Peter and pull him out of the waves and, and put us on, on the, the, the firm footing again. Run to Jesus. When you fall, when you fail, it is a reminder that self-effort doesn't work. I need Jesus. Run to him. Any other thoughts before we conclude here? Failing forward is the idea. Continually get back up and trust the Lord. Staying humble and depending on Him, His grace, His Spirit. Yes. Yeah, amen. You're right. I'm glad you mentioned the the, the time aspect because you're right. Sometimes we do go to Jesus two years later. You know, why why not book it right away to the Lord and, and, and not let things get worse. Yeah. Very good. Yes? I have one more quote from that book I really like. And, it, and Miles Sanford writes, Because of the death of the Son, having a value equivalent to the punishment demanded for all your sins, 
he's also paid for the sins you now commit. And he references Romans 8, 1 through 4. Um, you can't, if you're saved, you can't sin so much that God will reject you or not hear the prayer of his son. And he said, I want, I, I want to keep them forever. So, Amen. You can't, you can't uh, fail too much as a Christian. You, you get chastised for it. Sure. But you'll never lose your salvation. Sure. Amen. For those of us who fail a lot, that's comforting. Right. And a failure, if nothing else, in my life has exposed a ton of pride. You, you, know, you never know how much pride you have until God keeps exposing it. And uh, you know, I will think I've got it together and this is really doing something and then I'll wipe out. And God, why would you allow, how, how could this happen? This is terrible. And God's thinking, no, actually it's, it's, it's good. You needed to wipe out. You're full of pride, and God can't, he can't use that. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He doesn't want us to sin. But if we do fail and fall and sin, the silver lining is we can, we can get up humbly and, and therefore be in a, in a better position to then move forward by faith. Well, let's have a word of prayer as we dismiss here. Lord, thank you for this lesson, this series. Lord, help us to embrace uh, your grace, Lord, may we, uh, when we fail, will we fail forward and not get discouraged and, and, uh, and, and miss what you're trying to do in the failure. Help us, Lord, not to be self-righteous, but, Lord, to seek after Christ-likeness, genuine, uh, genuine love for you that would produce that holy living that only you can produce in our lives. Lord, we pray that you give a good time of fellowship now as we uh, dismiss and safety on the road and a good week of walking by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.